Good morning, guys. Welcome to North Boulevard. Those of you online, welcome to North Boulevard. Glad you're here. Got a special treat for you today. I'm going to start by just saying what some of you already know, which is North Boulevard has become a, something of a leader among other congregations that want to make disciple making the main thing and plant churches. And so we're entering, I think maybe our fifth or our sixth New Day conference. It's coming up in two weeks. I want to make sure you know about that and that you know you're invited to come to that New Day conference. Uh, usually we have people from all over the country and, and oftentimes people from other countries as well. With COVID, I don't really know how it's going to work out this year. We'll wait and see. But part of that is an extension that occurs on Saturday in this coming year on Saturday, September 11th. We actually have our Living Color Conference. So the four women who have been leading that, or some of the women who've been leading that, have just published a book. You can get it on Amazon. In fact, you can download it during the boring part of this sermon, if you'd like. And uh, on the 11th, this is for males or females, men or women. It's an opportunity to learn how you uniquely process the world and how that would interact best with others who process the world differently. I just want to promote that because it's kind of a big deal. So also, let me say this. We've had so many things go on just the last couple of years. Um, you know, in, in 1990, Francis Fukuyama, who was a philosopher, made the statement that um, Americans had taken a vacation from history. He meant there hadn't been any major incident up to that point. Well, with the floods, uh, the uh, hurricane that's coming in, the fires on the West Coast, the collapse of Afghanistan. You remember when it was two weeks to flatten the curve? Remember that? And now all of a sudden we're a year and a half into a pandemic. Um, it looks like history's come back and the vacation's over. And actually for a lot of us, we're really having to think through, okay, what's it mean to be faithful and how do we trust God in these situations? As a congregation, you know, you could make the case that we could do something for every one of these situations, but we have decided that we want to do something for those who were victims of the flooding that occurred here in Middle Tennessee in uh, Dixon County and Hickman County, uh, the Waverly area. Uh, 22 people, the last number I saw, who were killed there. These are sometimes kinfolk of ours, and uh, these are churches that we've worked with. So we just want to give you the opportunity over the course of the next week to make a donation for the flood victims in that area. We'll bundle the money together as a congregation. Part of it we'll give to Disaster Relief, a really good organization knows how to distribute the relief um, funds that we might give. And then we'll probably give some of it either to one or maybe more of the churches in that area so they can, you know, use it how they think might be best for people who are surrounding them. So this is an opportunity for you to give. We'll target next Sunday, but you know that you can give anytime. You can do it right now if you like online. Just make sure either this week or on Sunday that you mark it for fl the flood victims so that it doesn't go into the general account. It gives you a chance. North Boulevard, uh, you guys have always liked doing this. And uh, it's just a great ministry to be able to care for people who are really, in this case, in our backyard, although uh, we don't want to neglect people on the other side of the world either. This past Thursday night, Special Kids uh, had Scott Hamilton speak. Now, because of COVID, they had to cancel the in-person part, but it was online. I've never heard Hamilton speak before. He's a fabulous speaker, by the way. He's got a really phenomenal story. So I had... And I hadn't paid a whole lot of attention to figure skating in my life. I had to read up on it so I could do this illustration some justice. Hamilton was adopted as a baby, six weeks old, by a good family living in Bowling Green, Ohio, which is up on the Great Lakes. By the time he was two years old, he had some form of disease that was not diagnosed until years later. It was so serious that he stopped growing. In fact, he, 
when, when he finally won his gold medal, he only weighed 108 pounds and was five foot two inches tall. So he had not grown very well. Uh, multiple doctor's visits, multiple tests, all sorts of issues, mixed, misdiagnoses. In fact, he was once diagnosed with a disease and given six months to live. That's how, that's how much the diagnoses were uh, varied. Turns out, by the way, years later he found out that he had a small tumor in his brain, and that was the reason the, some of his facilities that were uh, affected. By the time he was in kindergarten, Hamilton had to be fed through a feeding tube, but he it's only because he was having a hard time processing the food. So he's actually still an active boy. So they would literally put the feeding tube in him, tape it to his head, and then let him go play. It was so stressful on his family, I think there were four kids, that one of the doctors finally said to his family, to his parents, not to him, but to his parents, y'all need to do something about your stress. You need to, and every parent, every parent online, every parent in here will get this, you need to get away from him sometimes. It just so happened that down the road, someone had just built an ice skating rink. That's how it started. They took him down to this ice skating rink, and he said, when he was speaking the other night, he said that the, um, the big surprise to him was seeing that none of, no other kids had feeding tubes in their, uh, taped to their heads. He hadn't seen that before. Well, soon he began to skate, and you know the rest of his story, perhaps. He became a world-class skater, four-time national championship for the United States of America. And then in 1984 in Sarajevo, he brought home the gold in figure skating. And today he's a, a, a Christian, lives in Nashville, lives in the Nashville area. And made the remark in an interview I saw as I was trying to get ready for this lesson, that he understood, now looking back on his life, through all the stress that God was with him, he said every step of the way, he repeats it every step of the way. But his life illustrates what a lot of us actually feel pretty much our whole lives, and that is an intense amount of stress. So there's all the stress that we experience from the list of things I just went through. You know, everything from hurricanes and floods and war and so forth. But then there's just the ordinary stress that we already face, the stress of raising kids, the stress of a job that requires a whole lot out of us, the stress of a marriage that maybe is not going the way that we would like, or the stress of a marriage that has broken up, the stress of our own, our own minds, in some cases mental disorders and mental illnesses. This is the stress of our bodies, you know, getting older and in some cases not functioning the way they're supposed to. I mean, we just face a lot of stress. And I want to ask the question, does Jesus teach us and equip us for stress in a way that the world doesn't get? Yeah, the answer is yes. He actually does. Jesus actually gives us great teachings about how to manage stress, what stress is, but he also gives us the power to grow in our stress. And that's what I want to talk about. And I want to start with the, uh, just a real quick overview of a text I'm going to read in a moment, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'd like to actually invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians 1. It's nice to have a Bible open in your lap, get it on your cell phone or however you get it. We'll look at verses 6 through 11 in a moment. 2 Corinthians, not first, but 2 Corinthians 1, 6 through 11. So Paul planted a church at Corinth. This letter was written five or six years later when he discovered there were problems at Corinth. And when Paul sends 2 Corinthians to 
Corinth. He's probably, uh, probably just left Ephesus and he's on his way to visit Corinth. So he's probably gone up this direction. So it'd be Neapolis and Philippi and Thessaloniki and other places. But he's on his way to Corinth. And he sends them 2 Corinthians for a lot of reasons. But one of them is just to talk about the stress that Paul himself had been feeling. We know something about Paul's stress. Because in Acts 19, Luke says that when Paul was in Ephesus, that's the background of this letter, that there was actually a riot about Paul's missionary work. There was a guy who made idols, and Paul was, uh, was reducing his idol business. So he got mad, and he stirred up a mob. There was a huge mob that ran down to the theater in Ephesus, and when they got there, they were all protesting Paul. So Paul says, look, I was in real serious condition when I was living in Ephesus. If you can imagine the mob action Paul must have faced. And in response to this, Paul writes this letter. So I want to read to you just a few verses. Chapter 1, 2 Corinthians, and we'll start at verse 6, though we could start really earlier if we'd like. Let me put my glasses on. Hear what Paul has to say about his stress. If we are distressed, by the way, the, the word there is stress, you see it in it, in the English translation, distressed. If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces a new patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. And then he gets really confessional here. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure. By the way, that's the definition of stress, is to be pressing on something. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. It sounds as though Paul is saying, I was actually thinking about suicide. The guy's under tremendous stress, he said. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us again. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us as you help us on by your prayers. So Paul actually describes how he dealt with his stress and I just want to list a few of the things that he mentions. And I'm going to do something a little different right towards the end here. First thing I want you to see is that Paul faces stress, that stress is a necessary part of life. I just want to disabuse you of that desire to live a life with no stress. There is only one kind of life that has no stress, and it's called a coma. And everybody around you is going to have stress. It's just you won't have it anymore. Stress is actually part of the universe. It's what makes the universe work. So everything in the universe is pressing against something, some force, some particle, some wave. I don't know what it is. That's stress. The problem occurs when we're pressing too hard against something, when we're pressing against something that we simply don't have the strength to press against. But stress is just part of life. And in fact, it's actually a good part of life. I mean, stress is how we grow. It's how we flourish. Some of you remember hearing uh, about penguin suits, penguin suits. When the Russian cosmonauts began to send their cosmonauts into the, the Russian government began to send their cosmonauts into space for long periods of time, they actually had to design suits that had rubber bands on them 
because what they were noticing is these cosmonauts would be up in a gravity-free environment for 30 days or 45 days, and the fact that their muscles had no stress meant that when they came back, their muscles had atrophied, that they had no strength left. So they actually designed their suits so that to raise your arm, you had to press against a rubber band. In other words, what they acknowledged is without stress, you only have weakness. So stress is actually a good thing for us. By the way, I just want to say this too. I just throw this as a freebie. In your small group, arguments are not a bad thing. Actually, sometimes an argument is how you get close to somebody. It's when you finally sort of cross a bridge and now you're being real with each other. In our relationships, sometimes a good argument is really healthy for you. It's not the fact that you argued, it's how you argue that matters, right? You should know that. Sometimes disagreement is really healthy. It's how we get to a better place. So Paul had stress in his life. He actually defines his stress in two ways. First of all, the great pressure they face, that's the idol uh, maker's mob action. But then there's how he felt about things. And I want you to see that stress actually includes both of the above, above. So stress is the actual pressure that bears down upon us, the stress of an illness, the stress of a job, the stress of a calendar that you filled with too many things, the stress of hunger, the stress of whatever. There is the actual thing pressing on us, and then there's how we feel about it. Both of those we mean when we say stress. They are related, but they're not the same. And actually, the interesting thing is that some kinds of stress, some kinds of pressure for some people make them happy, and the very same pressure or stress makes someone else sad. So someone out who works out in the gym because they really like a good workout will come back. All the stuff they did with weightlifting or whatever they did, they enjoyed it. The same kind of workout when you're digging holes for fences or you're actually digging a ditch, same kind of workout, don't like that quite as much. In other words, it's oftentimes our attitude towards the pressure we feel and not so much what is the pressure we feel. So, I want to suggest that when we look at what Paul does, we see that he understood stress is going to happen, and then Paul looked for what God was doing in his stress. It's a really important point. Stress has a direction for the Christian. This is what Jesus gives us that the world doesn't have. When, when the world faces a pandemic, what's the point? What's the point for the world? And the answer is there is no point. The point is, this virus got out of hell and came out and it's killed how many people in the North America? Is it up to 700,000 now? I don't know what the number is. But if you're a Christian, actually, even the pandemic has a point. That is, God actually uses our stress to accomplish something he would not have been able to accomplish any other way. And so Paul says, when he was facing what he was facing, that it produces patient endurance. He actually says this, he says, the re so if you were in Ephesus and you saw this mob action, you might have thought, well, those terrible guys, I can't believe they did this and, you know, th th those idol worshipers and whatnot. Well, Paul actually saw a different meaning in it. He said, the reason this happened was so that I would learn to depend upon God. You see that Paul takes the exact same pressure point and sees it very differently because he has Jesus. So whatever stress you're facing, actually, Jesus is able to use that for your good. That's true in marriage. It's true with your job, that Jesus offers us the perspective that God is always at work. And I want to show you something. One way to respond to stress, a very important way, is to respond with praise and worship. Amen. 
This actually is one that has taken me a long time to really, oh, I haven't figured it out yet, but to, to sort of get my brain around. In this very same text, I didn't read verse 3, but Paul starts the text out by saying that he gives praise to God. So here's a guy who, whose life has been under threat. He's considering suicide, and he says, but I praise God. It reminds me of what James says when he talks about the trials and the stresses we face. And he says, you should consider it a joyful thing that you face stress. James says, because that's how you become mature, through facing stress. There's an article that came out in 2017 in the Vanderbilt University Magazine. Some researchers had studied people who attend church and their mortality rate vis-a-vis those who don't attend church and their morality rate, mortality rate, morality rate too, I bet. Um, and what they discovered is that those who attend church from ages 40 to 65, I said 60 at first service, 65, those who attend church from ages 40 to 65 have a mortality rate 55% lower than those who don't attend church. In other words, if you want to live longer, come to church. Now, here's my question. Why? Why would it matter? And, you know, we, we, we who follow Jesus can imagine all sorts of reasons that matter, but I'm going to tell you one reason why. Because when you come in and you're all stressed out and you're all knotted up and, you know, you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders and all of a sudden you start singing, holy, 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 what ha- where does it go? Like all the pressure just leaves of this, uh, you're the one, the only one. I think you said we hadn't sung that song in a while, but man, that was, that was rocking up there. Like you start swaying and like you really like that thing and all of a sudden it's kind of like just the stress goes away, doesn't it? There's a power that comes with praise, a power that comes with thanksgiving. I just want you to see, and by the way, what is the world, who, to whom can the world say thank you? And I don't say this in a judgmental way, I really don't. What, uh, I have an atheist friend who once told me that the thing he misses the most about being an atheist is that there's nobody to say thank you to. He goes to the Grand Canyon and he can't say thank you to anybody because there's nobody there to receive it. That we actually have someone to praise. We have someone we can be thankful to. All right, I got to keep moving because I want to get to my special moment. Find someone with whom to share your feelings. I should have worded it that way, but I didn't have enough space on the line. So we had to do a short version. Paul says this when he's talking about his stress. He says, you share in our sufferings and you share in our comfort. Here's how the proverb writer puts it. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. So I was talking to Nathan Jernigan this week. Nathan's North Boulevard's full-time counselor. And we were just remarking on this, this really, I consider it to be a very odd phenomenon that with certain mental health issues, counseling works. Okay, everybody's like, yeah, well, we've been on that for years. But why does it work? Like who would say, you got cancer, let's stand in for every week, I just want to talk to the cancer for a while. Nobody thinks, oh, that would work, that'll solve it. Or you've got heart disease, I just want to talk to your heart every, once a week, let's just meet and we'll talk to your heart, $100 a pop, or whatever it is. But with depression, it works if you just talk to it. Half the time it works. Why is it that talking to a disease can cure the disease? I mean, that's really kind of an odd phenomenon, isn't it? Having someone who cares about you listen to you, I'm telling you, in my life, it's a lifesaver. When I have a friend that I can just call and say, help, something happens like the weight of the world goes off my shoulders. All right, so as Nathan and I were talking, he just mentions this. There are in your brain two amygdala, amygdala. These are 
this is your, uh, the smoke alarm in your brain that says, danger, run for your life, the apocalypse is here, Armageddon's happening. This is what every reptile has. Run for your life. It's a reptilian part of your brain, by the way. It's not a very sophisticated part. What it does, when it senses danger, it just shoots hormones through your body to equip you to fight or to run or maybe to faint. Right? Okay, when something goes wrong in your life, your amygdala, they get all excited. Uh, You don't know what's going to happen. You're in a panic and so forth. When you have a friend with whom you can just talk, let me tell you what's going on, an amazing thing happens. The problem leaves the five alarm, that, that, that siren, and it goes to the rational part of the brain just by talking about it. And all of a sudden, it's not that big of a problem anymore. You realize this isn't Armageddon. You know, there's, there's not an asteroid headed for us. Just talking about it can actually help you with it. And what we get in Jesus is a whole community of people who care. That's what we get, a whole community with whom we can share our burdens. And now, this one. Here's what happens under stress. A lot of us, when we're stressed out, we make terrible decisions. And we tend to take our stress out on other people. And rather than pulling together in times of stress, we tend to divide. There is no sadder illustration of this, I think, than a married couple trying to raise children, especially when children have special needs. You know the divorce rate for parents of children with special needs is 80%? And it's because, I'm not blaming the parents, but it's because we have a hard time learning to work together in times of stress. So, um, last year, two of our members wrote a book on raising children Challenging children. I'm using their language now. Um, I want to get. I want to get over this. So Roy and Margaret Thompson adopted three children. By the way, they openly tell the story in the book. All three children gave them permission to share the story, and they gave me permission to share. They adopted two of the children as babies, as infants, infants, and then one at the age of four. But there was no indication that any of them would have special needs. But as it turns out, all three of them did. And as I say in their book, all three of their children have been on lifelong psychiatric care. That means that they have dealt with at least the following, ADHD, dyslexia, bipolar disorder, attachment disorders, language deficit disorders, central auditory processing disorders, behavioral issues, sleep disorders, eating disorders, the normal fighting that all kids do anyway, endless doctor appointments, endless appointments with therapists, endless negotiation of medications, emergency calls, all sorts of sleepless nights and so forth. And in the book, they talk about how they managed to keep their marriage strong. And if you know the two of them, then you also know they're not just strong, but they're two very calm people who look really like they love each other. In fact, I would have thought, okay, if I were dealing with that, with three children, you know, that would be your whole life. In the middle of all that, Margaret, who also has lupus, started her own home health care business, eventually had 200 employees in her business before she sold the business. Roy is a dentist here, pretty, pretty, 
Got a big practice, in fact. And listen, in the middle of all this, he became president of the Tennessee Academy of General Dentistry, president of the Tennessee Dental Association, co-founder of the Interfaith Dental uh, Clinic, president of Kiwanis, president of United Way, member of the Rotary Club, a leader in our own John's House class. That's a class we've had, probably the oldest living class at North Boulevard in our Bible class. Runs marathons, recipient of awards. They've done all of this while they were trying to navigate, raising three challenging children and coming out with this really lovely marriage. So when they published the book last year, I told them, uh, I want to interview you. And then COVID hit. Well, you're in luck because I'm going to interview them right now. If the two of you will come up, I want to ask these two the question, how did you survive the stress? How did you maintain your sanity? The stress of raising three challenging children. So let's give Roy and Margaret Thompson our book. Okay, so did I get it right? Did I get it right? They did. I did. <laughs> so uh, let's just start here. Okay, is it, is it the case of the two of you? Are y'all, did y'all, have you survived? You still have your sanity? And yeah, it was great. We knew when they all moved out, it'd be great one day again. <laughs> but, and, but no, no, we've survived it and we've, we've grown. We thrive, just like you talk about stress. You, you grow and thrive and get better. Do you like each other? Oh, yeah. Do you, we love each other. Love yeah. <laughs> Isn't she so cute? <laughs> like if you That's overdo it. She said that about me at the first service. <laughs> if you overdo it, they're not going to think you stayed sane. So don't like try to keep it moderated there. Um, so when did, tell me when you started realizing what you're into as parents with your three children. Mm-hmm. You had to have some kind of pretty serious feelings there where you had to reevaluate, oh, wow, yeah. this, is, this is what our life's going to look like right now. Yes, and, and at some point, and this was several years into it, at some point we sort of looked at each other and said, for our relationship to work, these kids are going to take our attention. And I don't want this to sound wrong. We said, we've got to kind of put our relationship a little on hold to get the kids grown up and we will reunite at times. Now, that didn't mean we just, like, went to different parts of the house. But we, had, we realized that if we fought about the kids, we had to be on the page with the kids, on the same page with each other about the children, or it would tear us apart. And we realized that we were going to have to spend a lot of time with the kids. And we really sat down, and it was a conversation we had at the kitchen table that this is going to be difficult, but we will do it. We're both a bit hard-headed. Um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm interested in exploring that thought for just, a, not the hard-headed thing, but the, the conversation you had. Because um, I can envision a scenario where one of you says, hey, this is the way it's going to have to be. But the other one says, no, I've got too many needs. You can't, we can't, I need you to focus on me. And that ending in a disaster. Um, like, I can see that conversation going on. And, but we might have many kind of conversations like that. But Roy and I... Um, We've never been business partners. We respect each other for our business, but we've consulted with each other. But we always said, you make a decision about your practice, I'll make a decision about my practice. So we worked together for that for 10 years before we ever had children. So when this came to happen, we sort of sat down and said, let's put our two heads together. We have to work together on this deal. And so we had to figure out. And one reason I retired early. I didn't want to retire. I mean, I loved what I did. But we finally decided that um, we could not... You couldn't hire a nanny and ask them to discipline your child. That for these kids to get the parenting they needed, 
one of us need to be in the in the home full time. And we and we went back and forth. <laughs> do I do I keep my practice or you keep yours? And we finally decided it was better for Roy. And then I came home. And then we we redistributed some job duties at home. And uh, Roy just basically. Uh, you know, had his practice, and he would say he got the lucky end of the deal. It was much easier to do surgery than to come home and be with three kids. <laughs> Every man would agree, by the way, I'm just saying. Um, so, okay, we haven't had this conversation before, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go on to some other questions, but I'm really fascinated by how you were able to agree, because these are really heavy issues. I can just imagine a lot of resentment and, you know, well, well, I'm not getting what I need out of this. And all. how do you, uh, how'd you never, not? We never blamed each I don't, other. I don't think we ever went there. And this is a time you look at each other and go, okay, we have strength and weaknesses. Let's utilize your strength and avoid my weakness. So one of the things we did was Margaret had a little more free time during the day. She got the kids from 8 in the morning to 8 at night. But if anything happened from 8 at night until 8 in the morning, that was me. So sick kids. Just my nature, I can wake up, take care of something, go right back to sleep. So if the kids were sick, that was me all night. And we just kind of looked at each other and figured out, you did this well and I do this well. And we built on that. All right. So in the, I'm going to change the subject just a little bit then. On, the, on dealing with raising the kids, and you, you used two, two, uh, two strategies. Mm-hmm. One is what you call the pregame. That's where you, you prepare yourself for whatever the action's gonna be. And then the other one was, the, at the end of the day, the debriefing, yeah, where you talked about how did it go. So just tell us a little bit, because in the book you say that's like one of the most important things that you yeah. did, even before you go to a movie. Who's gonna sit where? Yeah. While we, in the car, even. <laughs> yeah, in the car, who's gonna sit in which seat, who gets which treat and all that. What's that about? Tell, tell us what's going well, on Well, it's, you, you don't want your children to get caught in a situation where they don't know what, what they're doing or what somebody's asking them questions. Um, it's not embarrassing to them, it's just that it's bewildering to them. So you say, okay, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna pull up, we're gonna buy the ticket, or dad's gonna buy the tickets, drop us off, we're gonna go in, nope, nobody's getting a drink, we're just getting popcorn, whatever. And you go in and say, this is how it's gonna be, you know, Roy and I sit between children. This is, you know, you're at the end, you're at the end. You were at the end last time, so this is, you're at the end this time. All that stuff you get all talked out ahead of time. And then we do it, and it gets executed quite well. And this, this reduces the stress yeah. of having the argument in the movie theater. Oh, same thing about going to church. Who's yeah. gonna sit where? Are you gonna sit with a friend, not sit with a friend? Are you gonna sit here? Whatever. Molly Ann liked a lot of space in her pew, so we gave her a lot of space. And, and that's the way, you know, because she wanted to wiggle around. And so, don't you remember all that? I was watching her. <laughs> so, we can tell you about Hulea, the other one. used to sit in front or behind us, and he would always say, who's going to get to watch who? Because we're sitting behind y'all today. <laughs> but you can talk about the well, other one. The debriefing was sitting down in the evening. We're, I think one of the things that's held our relationship together and made us so strong is we tend to not go to bed early, but we, we go to bed early, but not to sleep. And so we may go to the bedroom at 8.30 or 9 and lay in bed for an hour, and we enjoyed talking to each other. And part of that talk was the theater went terrible tonight. We forgot on the way that we're not buying candy. We forgot to tell them they're only getting popcorn. Or we, you didn't take this one to the bathroom, and they had to get up in the middle of the show and go to the bathroom, and then they saw the candy again. And so we met, met most places we went 
early on, we went into I've cars. I've got the same problem when no. I get up. I see the candy no, again. No, no, there, there are many times that we got up and somebody in the middle of O'Charlie's, one child went home with a parent because it wasn't going well. And so the debrief was what could we have done better? How did we... The goal was to always set ourselves up and our children for success, not failure. And it's Okay, hold on. I want you to say that again. The goal was mm-hmm. to set yourself up for success before you get there, yeah. not yeah. waiting until the moment That's arises. Right. It's, right. it's like professional sports. They don't just jump on the field and start playing. They pre-gamed and looked at the tapes. And after the game, they go through every play and go, who didn't execute? And we were good about doing that and looking at that situation saying, how do we do better next time? Yeah. Because it's not like we're just going to quit going to the show or quit going out to eat. And our medical training helped a whole lot. You don't just show up for therapy and go, oh, what are we going to do today? I mean, I already have a strategy in my head and the steps already worked out before you got there. And so my game is to teach you what we're going to do today. Let's go do it. And at the end, what worked, what didn't work about that. We'll do different the next appointment. So, Roy, you say in the book that um, you became Margaret's cheerleader. I think it's the language you used, maybe towards the end of the book, that you were her cheerleader. And so you saw one of your roles is, is elevating her. Can you just... Well, I want to hear from each of you on that for just a second. <laughs> she had the daytime duty. That involved most of the waking hours of the children. So sometimes I would get home and it, she would just be in tears nearly because the day had not gone well. And it's our conversation of, we can, we, these kids will not beat us. <laughs> so we felt like we're on the mountain with two swords back to back, fighting them off at times. And, and our kids, we say this very respectfully to our kids because they have made us grown. It not, it's not like they were setting fires in the house or something, but Just sometimes there were fires. <laughs> we'll just say this, the police, um, our, our youngest child has, uh, communication issues and if we didn't agree with her she'd just dial 911 so they'd come to the house and go Molly you got, can't do this anymore we're trying to arrest people that are committing crimes and Molly would be grab a paper sack I'm overventilating <laughs> we're like Margaret got all the police calls I was always at the office but you got you've got to laugh at this stuff or you will go crazy or you'll tear each other down doing it yeah you gotta laugh a lot now that's a, so over and over, you mentioned the role that humor and mm-hmm. laughing played. You, will you tell one story about uh, did one of your, I don't want to say which child, <laughs> but I know which one. But uh, does <laughs> such and such really think we're that dumb? Y'all said one oh, night yeah. as you're processing something that happened and you were able to laugh about it. Oh, yeah. How, tell just one or two Maybe comments about how yeah, joy yeah. mattered. I think it was, I don't know, I think it's still in my mind, but I can't remember the story. Since you said it, yes, yes. it was. Okay, well, I got it right. <laughs> um, I think what it, he told some big talk, tale was, you know, his kids do, and you go, and yeah, 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 and you go, you go to our room, go, does he think we're that dumb that we would buy that story? You know, and I think, I think we had a lot of that. And, you know, it's, even in my prayers to God, which are often, my whole life while I've been raising children, <laughs> has been, you know, can you believe I'm doing this, God? I mean, I know you know because you're here with me, but I can't, I can't believe I'm doing this. Whatever I'd be doing for a child, with a child, to a teacher, 
you know, whatever I had to do. But, but, you know, at the same time, these kids, you had to be an advocate for these children because the world can treat them very cruelly. We can treat our special needs kids very cruelly, especially mine, they look so normal. You know, um, they don't have a limp, they don't have a brace, they don't have a wheelchair, and they can be treated. Uh, But my kids, well, I was very lucky, they were all above average intelligence. So I had a lot to work with. Sometimes they were too smart, but, um, you know, I decided I was smarter than them. (laughs) And a a lot of the book is how how do you negotiate the medical uh, profession with a special needs child? How do you take care of your own health? There are a lot of important things in there. Yeah. So I I, I do... um, On page 53, Roy, you say, and I quote, no church is perfect. Would you like to revise that statement at all? We were visiting another church at that time. Oh, wait. Somewhere in the book I said, don't lie, too. (laughs) That's right. And forgive when they do. Um, So that red clock means that we're almost out of time, but I have to ask you this. So um, either of you can answer, both of you. Uh, you make it clear, you talk about your prayer darts, you talk about your relationship with God, the text, the scriptures that really helped you, but you make it clear that from the beginning, you, I'm sure it was a decision, you understood that God was trusting you with these three children and that um, they're in the image of God, Mm -hmm. that you are fully committed to what God has Mm -hmm. called you to do and that he's going to give you what you need in order to do it. Um, In fact, here's how you put it, Margaret. You said, Roy and I believe that God sent the three children, to us because he had a purpose for them and for us. No matter how difficult or taxing our situation, we never wavered from this belief. So how did that help you in your stress? Just like you just preached this morning. That stress, only thing it did is made me grow as a human. I became more compassionate, more patient, more understanding, non-judgmental. I mean, your kids could act up and down, and I had no comment about it. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, God will take care of that someday, and David can take care of it at his house. It's not my, it's not my, you know, it's not me unless you ask me for help. And we've been able to help a lot of families in this community, and that's been very rewarding. I've had judges and ministers and teachers and physicians call us and say, would you just meet with this family? And some of them say, we even charge them money. I'm like, I'm not charging anybody money with this advice. But I, we, we meet with them and we just talk to them and they're just so thankful to know there's somebody else out there yeah. and that they're not crazy themselves and that they can discipline their children and they can raise their children in a Christ-like manner and it can be done. God will guide you even though my, I cried many a night and you know what happened every morning? I had new ideas. And my prayers, I would call, talk to God, and say, I'm just out. I'm just zero. But the next morning, I'd have new ideas. And all that came from God, all of it. Early in the book, we talk about trust and commitment. And you've got to trust that your spouse, that you and your spouse are doing the best you can with the knowledge you have at this moment. Mm -hmm. And trust that they have the best interest of your child at heart. And stay committed to, we will see this through. So I really like your Proverbs verse, uh, anxiety weighs a man down and a kind word cheers him up. And there are many people in this congregation that have given us kind words along the way, encouragement, and and you do not know how much that builds someone up. So that's my encouragement to everybody today. And you've just done that for us too. So really y'all are so, you've done a great job, but you also, you have a role model marriage and uh, and thanks for sharing this. You, actually, you guys, you can get the book. They both, they wrote letters at the end. Roy wrote a letter to men 
uh, fathers married or unmarried and, and uh, Margrave did for women, married or unmarried. Really, it's worth looking at. So let's say thank you to Roy Margrave. I actually, I built the whole sermon around this because, uh, like I said, a year ago when I first read the book, I just thought, oh, wow, we need to share, we need living testimonies that this stuff actually works. And so, um, there you go. It's true for all of us, which is, whatever stress level you're at, God actually has ways for us to deal with the stress that we face that are healthy. We can flourish in our stress, as the two of them have demonstrated. So we'll end the lesson here, but just give you an invitation. If you'd like somebody to maybe pray with you, so online, you go online, there's usually a button that you can click and you find somebody live who will pray with you, coach you. Uh, if you're in the auditorium right now, you can go back to the back. We'll have several folks who are back there. They'll see you when you come back, ask you, do you want to pray? And ask God, you know what? Don't ask God to remove my stress. That's a weak prayer. Here's a better prayer. God, give me strength and give me your purpose in the stress I face and see what he does with that. So let's stand up together and let's sing.